Our scripture reading is from the book of Isaiah. We'll continue um, looking at this portion, the, the new section in Isaiah that began with chapter 40. We just read a few verses of chapter 41, but we begin reading today in verse 21 of chapter 41. We'll read into verse 9 of chapter 42, and then a few verses of chapter 49. And so, Isaiah 41, beginning in verse 21. Here, the prophet is inspired to speak directly to the gods of the peoples. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooses you. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun shall he call upon my name. And he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and as the porter treadeth clay, the potter treadeth clay. Who hath declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say, He is righteous? Yea, there is none that showeth. Yea, there is none that declareth. Yea, there is none that heareth your words. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles that wait for his law. Thus saith the Lord, the God, thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirits to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will uphold thine hand, and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. 
I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. And then we turn to chapter 49, and we'll be reading only verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 49 of Isaiah beginning in verse 1 listen O isles unto me and hearken ye people from afar the Lord hath called me from the womb from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft in his quiver hath he hid me and said unto me thou art my servant O Israel in whom I will be glorified then I said I have labored in vain I have spent my strength for naught and in vain yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God and now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel. And he shall choose thee. Thus far in the reading of God's true and eternal and precious word. I you again to open in God's word in the book of Isaiah chapter 41. That is where we ended just reading a few verses of chapter 41. We, we will not have time to consider all of chapter 41. I'm just focusing on a, on a few last portions for this um, sermon and Lord willing next Lord's Day um, just one more portion towards the end of chapter 49 these these are monumental passages in the book of Isaiah we, we saw how in chapter 40 there is the, the beginning of a, of a new section after God dealt very severely and very precisely Regarding the sins, not only of his people, but, but even of the whole world. Um, you'll find chapters where not only nations individually are being called to consider their sins and their ways and what will happen to them if they don't turn to God. But it ends up with a call to the whole world that judgment will come. And then remember it culminated in, in the example of that wonderful king who, who became an example of a, of a man who did not bow to powerful kings for help, but who bowed to the Lord. And then in two occasions, God graciously and mightily showed himself to be the king of kings who is to be worshipped against all odds in this world. We, we are tricked 
by the crowns and the gold, and we think that's where help is. And Hezekiah learned, no, it's in Jehovah. He is an invisible God, but He is the true God. He is existing. And God delivered Judah twice. But then remember, we saw even a good king is not the one that we go to. And Hezekiah is revealed to be but a man and not the long-awaited Messiah. And then chapter 40 comes. And the declaration that the Messiah will come. God has made it already very clear that yes, He, he will be a human. There have been verses in, in the beginnings of Isaiah that, that a virgin would conceive and give birth. That a child would be born. It, he will be a man. But in Isaiah 40, we have it clear that He will be God. He will be divine. Verse 10 is singled out in Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His work before Him. And unless you would think, well, of course, that's God coming because He will be beside His Messiah who will be the Savior. No, verse 11 shows this Lord who is God will be the human who is like a shepherd. Verse 11, He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And so we, we have this declaration. The, the, the Lord is coming. Salvation is, is on its way. He, it will be in the person of the Messiah. He is man and He is God. And with, with this section having begun and there having been this prologue, chapter 42 will be in earnest what, what we can call, which is the theme of today's message, the call and commission of the Messiah, of the Christ. Just like every prophet in the Old Testament had a moment where God singled them out and spoke directly to them that they would have a ministry, that it would be a prophetic ministry, and that there would be a direction and an inclination. Well, we have in Scripture what is called the call, the commission of Christ. And it's not only in chapter 42... This is why we will be reading in chapter 49. There's, there's another dimension of His call there. And you've noticed we have just sung Psalm 110. You could say that is the hymn in, that is to, in essence, be sung in the commission of Christ and whenever we celebrate the commission of Christ. And then our next Psalter following the sermon will be based on Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 also contains elements of the commission and the call of Christ to His ministry. So so Isaiah has declared the Savior will come. And now we will have in chapter 42 um, where where His commission is set forth. But, But before we go to His commission, which will be our second point, the divine call, we will start with our first point, which is a divine challenge. This is, in a sense, a prologue to his call. It brings it, in a sense, like a crescendo, so that we realize how how truly precious it is that we do have the Lord Jesus who is being proclaimed as the future Savior that will come to this world. Um, There's a challenge that is given by God um, 
to the idols themselves, to the false gods. In, in chapter 41 earlier, there's a little portion where God is calling to question the people who are worshiping the false gods. And in verse 21, where we began reading today, and that we'll consider a little bit in our first point, God, God is here in a, in a more direct way calling now the gods themselves. He called to question the idol worshipers. And now he's, of course, speaking in a sarcastic way to the idols themselves and speaking to them and, and, and challenging them if they can produce any kind of evidence, anything that would show that they are gods. And then sarcastically, God says, so that we will be in awe of you, so that we will have some reason to fear and to believe that you are God's. Now, now, of course, in a, in, a, in a true sense, God is speaking still to the idol worshipers because we understand, boys and girls, all of you, right? All of us understand these gods can't even hear. They don't exist. But God is, in, es- doing like this, in essence, doing this. Since you, idol worshipers, believe there are gods, I have spoken to you. I have challenged you. Now I will go to your gods and I will see if they have anything to say in their defense. That's the challenge. Let's look at this challenge um, to some degree. Look at verse 21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons. Um, these are powerful words. The, the word cause is meaning lawsuit. Produce your lawsuit. Bring your legal action. Let me listen to your quarrel. What, what is it that you can bring um, to, to prove who you are and in a sense against what I am bringing to you. When, when he says bring forth your strong reasons, it is to say your strong evidences. What are your evidences? Then look what he says. Let them bring them forth and, and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. He is saying, declare the future, and even declare the past. Tell us what will happen. Bring forth a prophecy. Let us see if it's fulfilled. Now, Isaiah is not unaware that the false gods and the false religion of the day had their prophecies and the priests would come up with certain um, oracles that their gods were proclaiming. But they were famously ambiguous. They could be interpreted any way. There's, there's a classic example from Croesus. He was one of the he was the, the leader of the Lydian Empire, and he when he was to enter a conflict with Cyrus, he went to um, ask the Oracle of Delphi to know who would win the war. And the phrase that he had was this a mighty empire would be destroyed. And the way he received it, the way he found in a sense seemingly favorable toward him, he saw that as meaning that he, the Lydian Empire um, leader, would, would win the war. But he lost. Cyrus won. And the oracle later declared that it was referring to the Lydian Empire. That would be the empire that would lose. 
Now, Calvin says this in speaking about the predictions of the false gods in the mythological world. He says, we shall find that they were all obscure and doubtful. Calvin gives this very example of Choresis. Then he says, by embarrassing ambiguities of this sort did Satan torture the minds of men so as to send away in uncertainty those who were the victims of that imposture. You know, that, that's how it's been. Whenever, whenever from that mythological world there was something about the future, it was always in a sense that it could be interpreted in any way. And whatever happened, in a sense, they could say, see, it's what we said. But it was nothing specific. It was nothing detailed. And, and this is what's precious about what we're about to see, what God does. So God is challenging them. Give us something. Tell us what will happen. Tell us what has happened. And then God says this, Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. Verse 23. And then he says, Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed. That's the awe, so that we may be in awe and behold it together. We, we, we will honor in a sense you if you give us something good and give us something evil. In essence, he's saying this, um, send harvest or send a storm. The, the evil here is in a sense of a calamity, in the sense of something that would be a harsh providence and yet a necessary one. Send a blessing or send a curse. Provide for your people or send sickness to the enemies of your people. And now God, when He does this, you, you understand, you, you and I, we read our Bibles, we, we know the Bible stories. When, when God is this way challenging the false gods, He is speaking out of a repertoire. If you think of the Bible, it is a compendium of how God is powerful over good and over evil. And how all the calamity in this world is under His control. And there's a need and a purpose. And all the good is under His control and His love and His goodness. And, and just to give a few examples. Think of Abraham and how God provides and protects him while, while assailing his enemies and with a mighty hand. Remember how God sent angels to do good to Lot while a great calamity falls upon Sodom for the evil of the, of the way of that people. God does good and He does evil. This evil is in the sense of discipline and judgment that He brings. Think of Joseph. And and here he begins with the harsh providence upon him. He is sold as a slave and he's marching toward Egypt. And God is ruling over all these matters. And, And yet he arrives there. And after more evil still where he ends up in the dungeon, he rises to be the second in command, the prime minister of Egypt, the counselor of Pharaoh. God did good to Noah and brought calamity to the world. He did good to Israel and brought calamity to Pharaoh. God gave water, remember boys and girls, to Elijah. He needed water. He had it from the brook. He needed food. The crows came and brought bread and meat. He resurrected the widow's son. He healed Naaman of his leprosy. And God is saying to these gods, do something. Anything. Can you do anything so that we can be in awe of you? And then verse 23 shows why, why God is challenging them. He says, 
that we may know that ye are God's. In a sense, he's putting like something very basic. For a God to be a God, he needs to at least do something. He needs to at least know something of the future and something of the past. Can you bring any evidence? And then the verdict is in verse 24. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooses you. The word nothing in Hebrew is ayin. The word um, of naught is apa. He uses alliteration. Ayin apa. You all are nothing a nothingness. You are something worthless. There is a non-existence to you. This is what God is saying. Because that is the exact truth, right? Um, These gods are only in the imaginations of the people. They don't exist. That's why they are powerless. And that's why they can do nothing. Because they are nothing. And then what happens in the text after God challenges them, in verse 25, what you could say here is that God takes the challenge Himself. Because look what He says, I have raised up one from the north. You see what God is doing? He's saying something He will do in the future. Something that He knows will happen in the future. That He will raise this one in the north who will come from the rising of the sun. And that's important. Because that's not the north, that's the east. And so look what God is saying. This person will come from the north, and he will come from the east. Not just the north, not just the east. He'll come from the northeast. And that's precisely where the Medo-Persian Empire was. Media was more the north, Persia was more the east. And he's going to be talking specifically about Cyrus, who would come. And he's saying he will come from the northeast. Um, upon, he shall call upon my name. And I'll read something soon from Ezra where we see this fulfillment that Cyrus had an understanding of God and Jehovah. And he shall come upon princes and upon mortar and as a potter treadeth clay. And, and beloved, later we will find in Isaiah, if you, if you turn there with me now to chapter 44, verse 28, his name is given. This was 160 years before Cyrus was born. No one knew about him. No one knew he he would exist. But in chapter 44, verse 28, it says, That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Into chapter 45, verse 1, we continue. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. 160 years before Cyrus even was in the history of the world, God is giving a prophecy. He is, he is saying something of the future and something He will do that will be good and it will be evil for, for Babylon because Cyrus would come to dominate Babylon and that would cause the deliverance of God's people. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we have something of the decree that Cyrus gave when he did come to rule um, No one knows exactly the order if Cyrus read this about him and chose to do it or if he chose to do it and then he was told that this was prophesied about him. We don't know the exact order, but we know he did it. 
Look at Ezra 1, 2-4. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there, who is there among you all of all his people? His God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of this place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, besides the free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. That was the decree of Cyrus. And so this is, this is our first point, the challenge. We see God challenging the false gods since they are silent and can do nothing. God takes up the challenge and he says something he will do. But now, as glorious as it is that Cyrus will come, um, some see Cyrus here as simply a prologue. He is, Matthew Henry calls him even a type of Christ in the sense that he is pointing to Jesus in chapter 42, now in our second point, the divine call, we, we have God, in a sense, He's continuing to take up that challenge and say, I, I will say something of the future. I, I will say something good that I will do. I will say something majestic and marvelous that will happen. Cyrus would happen 160 years. The coming of Christ would still take around 700 years. But this is how we need to understand this. Since he promised one thing and it was fulfilled, for all of those years that followed, God's people could see in the Bible, Cyrus came, so the Messiah will come. As certain as God's word was fulfilled for prophecy number one, I can be sure that it will be fulfilled for prophecy number two. And the prophecy number two is in chapter 42. And it's, of course, all about Jesus. Some people say he's just continuing to talk about Cyrus, but no. Everything about Cyrus has to do with military realities. Everything about Jesus has nothing to do with military realities. And you'll see what I mean. Everything about Jesus baffles the mind because there's absolutely nothing about the might and the force and the pomp of this world. And so we, we, we arrive in our second point, the, the divine hope. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And so this is, this is the declaration. We, we have here God first. He speaks about his servant. At the very end of this portion, God will speak to his servant. He speaks about Jesus, and then he will speak to Jesus. Um, in, in verse 6, the Lord God speaks to his son. But as he speaks about his son, let's, let's think what he says about his son. Well, the first thing is about his relation to his son. It's all in verse 1. There are four things he says in relation to his son. The first is that he is a servant. Just the very word servant already invokes the reality of humility. He's not called a king here. He is called a servant. He came to serve God as no other man or woman ever has served. The Lord Jesus is the ultimate servant. 
There is no one who's ever walked the face of this earth who has ever served God to a greater and more intense and more pure and perfect degree than the Lord Jesus. He's the preeminent servant, not only of God, but of all humanity. And this, this is what's just shocking, and this is what I mean. It has nothing to do with the pomp of the world. When, when we read later in 49 that, that there will be those who reject him, it still says that he will be the, the servant of rulers. Even as these kings are rejecting him, it's like Jesus saying, I am here to serve you. If you would have salvation, you would trust in me. And I died so that you have a Savior. And yet the world, many are, are, are rejecting. And then there are those here and there who say, well, I will believe in you. And that man passes from being a rejecter to being saved. All because of the service of Christ. And this is what's shocking. Christ is serving even people who hate Him. This is what we're seeing in Acts, right? There's Paul breathing, breathing um, um, murder against the church. He is, he is bringing havoc. He is putting men and women in jail. And then he meets with the Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And, 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 and the Lord saves him. He has mercy upon him. He serves the man who had been killing his people who had been persecuting him. Jesus said, why persecutest thou me? And it's like Jesus saying, Paul, you are persecuting me. I have come to the world to save you. He's a servant of haters of his. A servant. And then the next thing, it says that he is upheld. Look, behold my servant whom I uphold. Um, he's sustained of God. He's supported of the Lord. He, he will assist him in his ministry. He will, he will encourage it. He will do all that is necessary to be done so that his ministry will, will have success. And then he's called mine elect. It's not just, it is not just chosen in the sense that, well, I choose you, but it's in the sense of you are the best one that I can choose. See, you're, you're my chosen one. You are my excellent one. You, you are my choice one. And, and, and again, think of, of the Bible. God, God has had many men that He has chosen. He, he chose Abraham and began with him. And we could go back. He, he chose Noah and began with him. And, 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 and we go back to Abel. And he chose him. And, and we can go forward and think of, of from Abraham. Well, he chose Isaac. And he chose from, from Isaac, there, there was his son Jacob. And then from Jacob, there were the twelve, but a few of those were, were more chosen in a sense. Judah, because it would be through Judah that Jesus would come. God has sent to this world many chosen people that he saw with favor and with love. Think of Moses and, and Aaron. But of all these, there's none more precious to the Father than His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. And then He adds this, Mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. When we read this, it, it becomes an echo of when Jesus is baptized and where the Father says that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. What, what He says 700 years before Jesus is born in a prophecy, He says... 
to the people who were at the baptism of John when Jesus is there and the dove comes, the Holy Spirit, in the form of the dove and God speaks and says, this is my beloved son. But to anyone who knew their Bible in those days, they would have something of an echo of Isaiah 42 in their hearts. And they were supposed to. I keep imagining that maybe a little child there would tug their mom and say, Mom, didn't you read that verse? I, I just heard from heaven that he is a delighted one. Isn't that Isaiah 42, 1 of the Messiah? Now that's why it's important for us to know our Bibles. Because then we would be in a moment like that thinking, that's the Messiah. He's here. And so after God speaks of His relationship, He says a couple things about the ministry of, of His servant. And, and there are two main things, that, that it would be in the power of the Spirit. Um, in verse 42 still, it says, I have put my Spirit upon Him. That would be His ministry. It would be the ministry of the Spirit. That's how He would fulfill His ministry. He would have the strength of God the Spirit. And so right here, we, we have the triune God. God is, is commissioning His servant. The servant is the Son who is divine. And the Spirit who is also divine will be the one to indwell the Son and speed Him in the way and strengthen Him. And, and it says that He will bring judgment to the Gentiles. This judgment is not in the sense of like a condemnation. It's in the sense of governance. He will rule over the Gentiles. It's already here a preview that He would be a light to His people and to the Gentiles. Later it will be made very clear that He's a Savior of the whole world, not just to one group of people. But then in verse 2 on, we, we have another thing about how His ministry would be. It would be in the power of the Spirit... But it would not look powerful. And this is what I mean, that it's nothing to do with how Cyrus would be chosen and used. It's a different way. It, it, it baffles the mind. Look at verse 2. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. So, so we really have two things that are being said here. There, it would not be an outspoken ministry. And it would be a very gentle ministry. It, it would not be the kind of ministry that would look like, like a protest or that would look like demonstrations. He, he would not engage in, in guerrilla tactics or, or strikes. That would not be his ministry. He, he would have nothing to do with tumult or with outward show. And in fact, remember, Jesus did everything to avoid that. After many of his miracles, he would caution the people not to publicize it. And to certain events, he would only take three of his disciples or go on his own. When he was followed by a crowd at once, he once he turned around and, and made sure that only those who followed him because of him would follow. And a great multitude turned around. And when there were multitudes, it was usually in the fields, out in the wilderness, or, or by the seashore, not like in the downtown areas. And then you might be saying, well, but I remember he was once in the tumult of the temple, a lot of people, and he spoke out loud that if anyone had thirst to go to him, yes, he did that. 
But see, it was not the tenor of his ministry. It was not the theme. It was not what he did all the time, and it was only toward the end. It was, it was going to be a quiet ministry. But see, this, this is precisely one of the things that bothered the Pharisees. They thought he's, he's too quiet. It, it's not full of pomp and circumstance. But see, they, they failed to understand that's precisely how it had to be. And then the gentleness, this a bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. These are two figures that's showing that he would be a man of kindness. He would be mild. He would be gentle, especially with the lowly ones. A bruised reed, boys and girls, you know how a reed would be kind of like just those grass things that grow tall? And you know how when there's a little kink on that, that, that grass in a sense never sticks up straight again. It, it just stays flopped down. And you might put it up, but it flops down again. It, it's in a sense half broken. And God is saying He will not finish breaking people who are half broken. And in fact, what he will do is mend them so that they're not bruised any longer. And isn't that what Jesus did? Maybe even as I say these things, your mind might be gravitating to certain events. Think of that woman who came to Jesus, half broken, pouring her heart out at the feet of Jesus. There are others wanting to finish breaking her. And make Jesus feel guilty that she is touching him and pouring her heart over the feet of Jesus, washing his feet with her tears. And the Lord Jesus says that that is a display of love that he has not seen from the host of that home. In the kisses, in the anointment, in the weeping. And Jesus values what she did. Can you imagine how that bruised reed was was re constructed in a sense and strengthened and then a smoking flax is is another figure showing the same thing that the flax would be that wick in the lamp and if it's smoking it's because the flame is not too bright it's it's too dark so it needs to be trimmed and cleansed but a, a smoking flax you would have the tendency to just wet your fingers like we usually do to a candle and and press that you you wet it I remember seeing my parents and grandparents doing that. I never understood what ritual that was until I realized it does help not burn your fingers. But it doesn't keep it from being black. But that's what a bad person would do to another person who looks like a smoldering flax. We're not talking about a candle that needs that because we don't want that smoke on. But see, we see that candle with that smoke and our tendency is to wet our fingers press that wick it's dealt with look at the figure here you see in society people people who don't have a heart to the lowly ones that's what they want to do to them now that person is giving me a hard time this 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 person is too expensive for the system this baby will be unwanted by this family We'll just put it out. See, in society, there are many such people who are like smoldering flax. And society who has no heart wants to quench them. 
Jesus would not do that. He would see that smoldering. He would trim the lamp, the flax. He would cause the light to bright, to, to, to shine all the brighter. The, the example that comes to my, our mind is that, my mind at least, that, that moment that Jesus goes to the well in Samaria. That woman who comes, she was the smoking flax of that village in Samaria. They would see her as a very immoral woman. She had had multiple husbands and was living with one who wasn't. And then remember, when the Lord Jesus reveals himself to her, she goes to town and tells all the people that very likely she saw the Messiah. And she's used of God to bring all those Gentiles, those Samaritans out. And then later they even tell her that they believe. And it began with her witness. So she begins as a smoking flax, but she ends up as, in essence, the first missionary to that village of Samaria. God used her as a bright light. That's the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He would not be ruthless. He would not be cruel. Look what Calvin says. He says, if, if he were to act toward us with the utmost rigor, we should be reduced to nothing. Although men therefore totter and stumble, and although they are even shaken out of our, or out of joint, yet he does not at once cast them off as utterly useless, but bears long till he makes them stronger and more steadfast. And so what we're seeing here is this. What God has been telling His people to stop doing is to be thinking that they can have salvation from the kings of that world because those kings had power, they had pomp, they had military might, and it was very tempted for lowly Judah to think, that's our Savior. And a lot of them ruled with that mighty hand and they would oppress the population and they were ruthless. And you would think, well, the only way to gain victory over them is let us find another king here. Let's have allegiance with this king. He will be oppressive. He will be ruthless over that other king. And in the minds of the people, and beloved, isn't this the history of our day? Whoever has the mightiest um, um, cry and more bombs in this world, it just seems that will be the solution. Let's find a nation to align ourselves that has more of an arsenal. Oh, well then, well, then those will say, well, then let's align ourselves with one that had a greater arsenal. That's how the world works. And so the world could be thinking, we need a Savior. And what is a Savior that God will bring? And God is, in essence, saying, I do things completely, utterly different. I'm not going to use a greater oppressor to gain victory over your oppressor. I'm going to bring a servant he, he will be oppressed. But even in the venue of being oppressed, he will be a savior still. Look at what one John Oswald, a commentator, says. The point is plain. Like the child of chapter 9. See a child? We're, we're speaking of a savior, but God brings a child in chapter 9. And the branch of chapter 11. Remember, the word branch is like a little twig. God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression, nor is His answer to arrogance more arrogance, rather in quietness, humility, and simplicity, 
He will take all the evil into himself and return only grace. That is power. And beloved, that you know Isaiah, you know that the climax of all that we're saying is chapter 53. And if you could throughout this week read chapter 53, you'll, you'll see in a fresh way what I'm saying. That's where we finally get to verses that speak of this Messiah. And what do we read? That it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And it says that he took upon him our sins. That's how God does it. He doesn't combat oppression with oppression, he combats sin with his servant. And his servant becomes a sacrifice for sin. And then God ends by speaking to his servant in, in verse 6. Notice in, in chapter 40, 42, at the end of proclaiming that Jesus will, will, will begin his ministry, verse 6, I just want to show this, that, that, he, that he speaks directly to the Son. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. Notice the precious reality that after God speaks to the world that his servant will come, he looks to the son and, and confirms the son. He, he charges the son. He, he is speaking in love to the son. I will hold your hand. Now we, we just read how God will speak to us when you trust in Him and wait in Him. He will hold your hand and tell you not to fear. He's doing the same to His Son. It's bringing the reality of His humanity again. So that's our second point. And let us now go to our third point. Now, for our third point, we will, we will skip many precious chapters. Again, because we won't have time to cover them in the series here that we're having. But in chapter 49, I trust you will see why this chapter goes in harmony with chapter 42. We have now the divine acceptance of the call. So we've looked at the divine challenge, the divine call, and in chapter 49, we have the divine acceptance. Because notice who is speaking Let me read a few words again of of chapter 49, verse 1. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In the quiver hath he hid me. And in verse 3, And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And we'll continue reading. But you notice who is speaking. God spoke to the world about his servant. And then he spoke to his servant and confirmed him that he will be sent. And now in chapter 49, we have the Lord Jesus, the servant himself, is speaking. And we, we, this is why I'm calling it the acceptance of the call. This is, this is the Lord Jesus acknowledging that, that he's been called by the Father. And now in chapter 49, it's, it's a new section that starts with, with these differences that, that help us value this portion. Um, no longer is Cyrus even spoken about. 
The focus will no longer be in a military way in Judah and in a historical way their need. That that history did point to even the reality of what we need spiritually, but it was very pointed to them. They would need to know about Cyrus. They would need that encouragement. But now the whole focus is upon this servant and the ministry that he will have and the character that he will display. The captivity is no longer spoken of. And now it's about salvation of men and women everywhere. So so chapter 49 starts bringing this very personally to your and my reality. Look at verse 6. That thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. So that's one thing that changes. And then another thing that changes is that no longer is the servant's presence... Only a a sharp rebuke to the false gods. It's not focusing anymore in that comparison. Look at the gods of the world. They can do nothing. That's kind of past and it's behind now. Now the whole focus is the servant himself. His suffering will be referenced in a few places and in a climax in chapter 53. And his glory and his victory will be declared as well. This is what we see now. And the first thing I want to see is the acknowledgement of the call in in verse 1. Jesus, notice what he's doing. He's not addressing Judah. He's not addressing Israel. He says, listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The whole idea of islands, boys and girls, don't think of just little islands here and there. Islands were, was like a, th- a word for the countries beyond the sea. So they would see that whole Mediterranean Sea. And to the Israelite people, you can imagine, in their minds they knew there were peoples out there. And they just would call it islands. And it was like, it was like in their concept, even if Greenland would be out there, that would be an island. And, 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 and north and, and middle and central and South America, that was like one gigantic island in a sense. Islands is really the whole wide world out there. And peoples from the far. Jesus is speaking to the whole world. And he reveals that he received the call. See, he's acknowledging, um, the Lord hath called me from the womb. Isn't it precious to see God calls him from the womb, and then now the the Lord Jesus is saying, the Lord has called me from the womb. There's there's an agreement. It's not just one side of the story. It's both of them. And then he announces um, that, and he declares who he is. It's what God said that he is. He's, a, he's acknowledging God said that. Um, From the bowels of my mother hath he mentioned, made mention of my name. He, he, he's chosen me. He's called me with a name. I am his. And I'm responding. I'm acknowledging. Remember when the angel came to Mary and, and told her, he will be called Jesus. There was, there was a calling when he was in the womb. And then he speaks in verse 2 about the nature of the call. And there are two things about the nature. And, and this flies again against how the world perceives that a Savior should act in this world, which would be with pomp and army and munition. There are two things about Jesus. The first is the word. So he says, He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. 
You know how in Revelation, when it speaks of the coming of Jesus, there's this sharp sword that's coming forth out of his mouth. Well, the sword is clearly an emblem of God's word. In Ephesians, it even calls the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. And it comes out of his mouth. And so, of course, it's, it's what he speaks. It's, it's what he says. That's, that's his weapon. The sword is a weapon. What is the weapon of Jesus? It is the word of God. It is what he says. And this is why, beloved, all of us, the, the only power you and I have in, in serving the Lord here is if we say what's in this book. Not our ideas, not our thoughts, not our stories. Not what we think, not what we wish. But where we simply, in a sense, just mimic and just send forth what God's word is saying. Because Jesus said, He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he, hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft. That's, that's an arrow. And boys and girls, think of an arrow that's, of course, very polished right at the very beginning. And, and then in his quiver hath he hid me. Well, we can say here a lot of things about the word. And so some, some people think in this way, well, the sword is a symbol of how God's word acts very locally. And wherever it is proclaimed, there is an effect. But then it's like an arrow. So, so even far away where the word arrives, it can have an effect as well. Matthew Henry brings the thought that the, the arrow would be the thought of how the word comes and affects us with conviction into our hearts. He says, convictions of the word are the arrows that shall be sharp in the hearts of sinners. And so the, 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 the sword of the word is used and it goes forth into the hearts of people. God knows every heart that it should go into. And then it acts and it has power. It convicts and it comforts. And so this is the weapon that God uses, the Word. This is why the true believer knows nothing of violence, knows nothing of, of human weapons in terms of, of the church. The church in old ages, um, there were many confusions of how they were to conquer the heathen. Now, the, the reason we, we need to be careful as we would criticize is, of course, there were times where there had to be defenses because there were attacks and wars just like there are today. And God's word speaks of defense and how, of course, we'll defend our family and our cities. But whenever things were well and in the minds of some leaders, there was a thought, let's go there and just conquer that land for Christ. And, and if it were to use a sword, in a sense, that was completely wrong. The word is what we need to use. The word, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it, it does greater work. It has more efficacy than what this world would give, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so... That's one of the natures of the ministry of Christ. And then the second is this in verse 4. Notice verse 4. It brings the same almost 
anticlimactic account. Here we're thinking of a savior. He will be a king. He will be a ruler. How will he do it? Verse 4. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. See, this is Jesus. He's acknowledging his call, but in a prophetic way, he's also acknowledging that it will involve suffering. That's a word that we could explain. Verse 4. The humiliation of Christ. There would be a moment in the ministry of Christ where he would look around and it seemed like it was vain. He came for the Israelite people and they rejected him. And you can think of the apex of where Christ would have felt like it was in vain when he was on the cross and he gave that cry, a dereliction. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That doesn't it sound like a heart that is thinking of what's happening and it seems like it's in vain, that there's no purpose. But, but that's just explaining the reality of how, how deep his humiliation would come and how desperate it was really seen because he was there a sacrifice for our sins. And he would be experiencing hell itself on the cross where he would, in a sense, think that this is vain. And yet he knew it wasn't in vain. And the Lord was, this is where he needed that sustaining of the Spirit and upholding him. Because he could say what he says in the very verse, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. It's really just showing how great suffering, what a great suffering he would experience, and yet how the Lord would sustain him through it all. And that would be how he would work, through the word and through suffering. But Jesus is the only one who would have to suffer as a sacrifice. The suffering that you and I may, may have in this world because of persecution or because of other realities connected to humanity, they're never a, a suffering for the sake of our sins. Christ suffered all of that. Now notice in, in, in conclusion just two things. The first thing is notice the big picture here. Of all that we've been seeing. Judah, there was all that reality that soon they would go into captivity. They would look around and it would seem disastrous. Some families suffering more than others because of death of loved ones and the ruins of their homes and now going into a foreign land into captivity. And then think of those who are there 20 years now, 30 years now, and they would just think, how long will we come? Has the Lord forgotten us? And God promises them a Cyrus. So Judah needed a Cyrus to be certain they would see the land of promise. But Judah... And indeed, the entire world, including you and me, need the Messiah to be restored to God. In many ways, what Judah needed and was restored to the land was an emblem of what the whole world needs to be restored to God. Judah needed Cyrus to regain the land. You need the Messiah to regain heaven. Without Cyrus... They would have remained captives in Babylon. And without Christ, you and I will remain captive by sin. And to give that political deliverance, there was the need of a sword and there was a need of power and an army and, and battles were necessary. And that's how Cyrus conquered. But to give spiritual deliverance, 
there was a need of a cross and a need of suffering of one victim to the point of death because without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins so our conqueror and king the Lord Jesus had to also be our sacrifice and victim and all who trust in him even from the ends of the earth if he's to be a light to the Gentiles and that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth that means that no matter where you are or who you are if you trust this savior the Lord Jesus you will have the certainty of heaven and be delivered from sin and then the next thought is the beauty of of prophecies that that leads us to what we've just said It, it begins in that very specificity of judah and they're needing a deliverer and they are given cyrus in time but then that's left to the side and the prophecies become more about you and me and what we need and god is saying i give you what you need The Bible is not a book for just one group of people. It is a book for the whole world. And just to end with that specificity, we said something about the oracles of the false gods. We've said so many things about the Lord Jesus. Boys and girls, remember, He was in the womb of His mother and the angel spoke of His name. And then he comes into this world and everything about him was of lowliness. The way he spoke to sinners, he was not wanting to break the the, the broken reed and he was not wanting to quench the smoking flax. And even as he finished his ministry, the rulers of the day were all rejecting him. Herod was in a Dumian, representing the people from Esau, rejecting him. Pilate was a Roman with his soldiers, all Romans, representing the whole Roman Empire, rejecting him. Caiaphas and Annas were representing all of the Jewish people, rejecting him. He truly was rejected of the kings. Verse, verse 7. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth. You know, the next person you meet who says, I reject Jesus, you should look him in the eye and say, you need to understand that that very rejection was prophesied in the Bible. And Jesus, one of the qualifications that He would be the Messiah is that He would be rejected of man and even of nations and yet at the same time it says he would be a servant to rulers kings shall see and arise princes also shall worship well isn't it the world we find kings who worship Christ and we find rulers who reject him and when there are souls that reject Jesus it shouldn't surprise us that that was prophesied that's who Jesus was said to be And that he would conquer all that he would conquer by becoming a sin offering. And so 
the Lord Jesus received his commission. He accepted his commission. And we had a blessing to, to look into this. And Lord willing, we, we hope to still have one more sermon towards the closing of chapter 49. A great and glorious promise um, revolving the salvation of Christ and the certainty that we can have that he will never forget us and never forsake us. Let us close in prayer. Our gracious and glorious God, we do thank Thee, Lord, for for Thy Word. We thank Thee for having promised that Christ would come, for having commissioned Him to the ministry. And we thank Thee, Lord Jesus, for having accepted. And we thank Thee, Lord, that we are the recipients of all these promises and all these prophecies and all these glorious things. Help us, Lord, to receive them in faith. Help us to be full of gratitude. Help us to be full of wonder and of joy. And forgive us, Lord, for all our sins. Forgive us, Lord, for all the the lack of trust in such promises. In the times, Lord, that we do um, have doubts and that we wonder and we pray, O Lord, that we would never do so, that we would always be um, trusting that what Thou hast promised will always has already happened and will continue to happen. We pray, Lord, for the salvation of many. There, there are so many uh, Jews and Gentiles still in the world who do not believe and who are not saved. And we pray, Lord, that their eyes and hearts would be open to these blessed truths, that they would see that Christ is the light of the Gentiles, of the whole world, even to the ends of the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.